Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number six, and I'm Phil Thompson. I teach voice and speech at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm joined here today by Eric Armstrong. Hi there. Yes, I'm Eric Armstrong. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I teach at York University, and I teach voice and speech and text and accents and dialects and Shakespeare, just the same sort of things that Phil does. Excellent. Uh, I want to start today, actually, with a new feature uh, which is a correction, which we haven't had yet. I'm not saying that we haven't had to have a correction yet, but this is the first one I've noticed. Uh, last time I said, uh, when we were talking about the happy sound, I was talking about words that had come into English, especially place and person names that ended with L-E-Y or L-A-Y, uh, L-E-A being the word for a meadow, a lee. And so I pulled out of my back pocket the word Findlay, and said that that was Finn's Meadow. That was just complete fanciful invention on my part. Uh, and I since looked it up and found that Finley is actually Irish, Finn Lach, uh, fair warrior, I'm told. And I would have been so much better off saying Bradley, because that one is Broad Lee or Broad Meadow, Bradley. Uh, it went through the same process to become an I in a happy word, but uh, broad is better, Bradley. So let's talk a little bit about the shape of the show. We've been doing this for a while, so we probably don't need to go into a lot of detail. But essentially, we're talking about a sound, a speech sound. We talk about how it's formed. We talk a little bit about the history of the sound as it occurs in English, a little bit about the history of the spelling of the sound uh, and what sort of variations in spelling we might see, and then finally about the variations in pronunciation that Eric and I run into as voice and speech teachers and coaches, uh, how it is found in the wild. Does that pretty much cover it? Yes, very much, very clear. Let's, let's dive in. What are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about two sounds, k and g, and this completes our trilogy on plosives in English, uh, as you know, if you've been listening. First of all, if you've been listening, thank you so much. That's very nice. Uh, you will know by now that we cover a consonant sound followed by a vowel sound and alternate those, and we've already been through ta, da, pa, ba, and now we reach ka, ga, and they're very, very similar in formation think that means that it's about time to talk about that formation. Sure. Would you just say a little bit about how plosives are made? Plosives are made by uh, two processes, a closure with your tongue and a closure closing off with your soft palate. Soft palate is that muscular feature at the back of your mouth that sort of hangs down and at the bottom of it is your uvula, that little punching bag at the back of your mouth. When you yawn, you lift your soft palate to close off the top of your mouth. Otherwise, if it's down and relaxed, then the air can travel above your soft palate and out through your nose. So when you make a plosive sound, you have to close that doorway, the so-called velopharyngeal port. Which is a lovely word. Yes. We have to close that port or doorway off by lifting the soft palate 
and then we have to close off the front of the mouth, and that's either done with the front of the tongue for ta-da, or the lips for pa-ba, or the back of the tongue for ka and ga. So that's pretty much it. Uh, it's a good reminder that there are really two co-articulations happening there, that the everything has to be sealed off so the air can't get out, and then we let it out through the front door. Mm-hmm. Um, though you, I suppose if one went from a K or G sound into a nasal sound, you might let the back door out to let it go out your nose. Exactly. And we'll probably get back around to that in, in later discussions because mm-hmm. it certainly happens. Well, I, I thought it might be useful, uh, since we're talking about a different part of the mouth here, to actually go through all of the anatomy uh, to explain a few terms, but also so that we can, in rehearsing it, uh, get an idea, a 3D model in our head of what the territory is. So the front of the vocal tract, that is the part closest to the outside world, is the lips, and we call anything happening at the lips labial or bilabial. Behind that, obviously, are the teeth. We call that dental. Everything's cool so far. Then moving back, we start to move up to the upper surface of the mouth to talk about where we're making our closures or other consonant sounds. And that surface, by the way, is called the tectal surface. I don't have any idea why, but that's what J.C. Catford calls it, so it's good enough for me. Hmm. I didn't know that one. Isn't that nice? It's it's a Tec- great tectal. Tectal, T-E-C-T-A-L. I have no idea whether it relates to tactility or whether it's some uh, Latin or Greek word for domes. So perhaps I ought to do a little research on that. Mm. So the first part of that surface, right behind the teeth, is the alveolar ridge. And as voice and speech people, we're accustomed to looking at these lovely cross sections of the mouth. Mm. But it's good to remember that, in fact, your alveolar ridge goes all the way around your mouth. And it it sits right behind the teeth. It's called the gum ridge or the alveolar ridge. Alveolar is Latin for teeth. That's the tooth ridge, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And and so there's this territory between tooth and tooth ridge that you can feel with your tongue, which is what I'm going to do right now. It's different for everybody. There are funny little bumps. And then as you move back from that area, you move into what we'll call the post-alveolar area, right behind that ridge, where you sort of dive up into the palate. Now, everybody's palate is a different shape. I have a very high palate, at least in the brief comparisons I've done with other people. And uh, I can get my tongue really far up there. In fact, uh, this is an overshare, uh, depending on uh, the weather, sometimes uh, I can draw air in through my palate. There's a slight little area that isn't completely closed for me. So I'm, I have the tiniest cleft palate in the world. Wow. Isn't that interesting? You it's learn something new every day. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is one reason why I never use those sort of nasal decongestant sprays, because that's guaranteed to open that up. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm a mutant. So that area where I have my uh, hole is the palate. And the palate is essentially the the bony upper surface of the mouth. That's, of course, covered in flesh. It's bumpy and interesting. 
as we reach back there, we get to a place where the bone gives way and you just have the flesh there. And that's the part that you were just describing as the velum. Mm. At the back ridge, of, back edge of that velum is that little uvula, the punching bag that you mentioned. Uvas are grapes, so it's a little grape hanging down there. Anything behind that pharyngeal port is the pharynx. And so we refer to those things as pharyngeal. Phil, do you have tonsils? Uh, yeah, I still have them. So are those considered part of the pharynx, or are they part of the soft palate? I would say that they're part of the pharynx. They're part of these uh, columns that uh, support the arch of the, the velum there. Uh, they are, however, the surface of the chamber. So that whole chamber is essentially the pharynx, and there is no firm dividing line physically between the oral tract and the pharyngeal tract. So it's an estuary. Things uh, meet and mix in there. Mm. So we have the, the oropharynx yeah. behind the mouth and above that the nasopharynx. So exactly. sort of the back of the nasal passages and the back of the mouth passages sort of making a chimney, if you will, coming exactly. up from the larynx. And uh, if we go down then towards the larynx, we'll, we'll run into the epiglottis, which is a little uh, flap like the flap on top of a semi-truck's exhaust that opens up or closes to cover the tube. That's much nicer than the image I've always used, which is of a <laughs> flap valve in the back of a toilet. Yes, that works too. And, uh, and it is. It's a valve. Uh, it is a little valve, a flap that covers over our larynx and our breathing apparatus so that we can swallow food. Uh, if we couldn't do that, we'd be in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about it in terms of articulation because there are sounds that are formed in that epiglottal region. Then below that, we're into the larynx, and the bottom, you could say, of the larynx is the glottis, or the closure or opening between the two vocal folds. So everything from the vocal folds out to the lips and out to the nostrils is your vocal tract. Right. The glottis is, I I love this little fact, the glottis is the only anatomical structure that disappears several (laughs) hundred times a second uh, when you're phonating um, because it disappears when your vocal folds are together. But um, there's another structure that uh, isn't usually used for articulating phonemes per se, but uh, it may add vocal quality, and that's, of course, the false vocal folds that we associate with that kind (laughs) of Louis Armstrong kind of sound. Exactly. Uh, no, No relation. Mm. <laughs> well, and you were talking on Vastavox, or talking, writing on Vastavox, about Dudley Do, right? I think you were the originator of that question. And uh, I, I really think that that kind of tight pharyngeal thing is the areopiglottic region, uh, which has been associated with the singer's formant, that, that tightening and brightening that produces uh, a sound that we sometimes mistake for nasality, but which is really brightness. I think I think we may have been talking about two different things uh, cuz I was talking about this sound <laughs> Dudley do right. Well, which uh, what I'm suggesting is much more is at the back of my mouth rather than down in my uh, uh my uh larynx. So well, we're, it, we're doing two different things, I think. I, I think you may be right and uh, uh what we'll have to do is get into a lab somewhere and really figure it out. That's yes. one thing I love about voice science is that people are still figuring things out. Yes. Uh, all right, let me go back in the anatomy 
uh, one more time because we took the tectile surface, we took the top road, and that's usually the place where we describe where sounds are made. So when we talk about a bilabial sound or an alveolar sound or a velar sound, which I'm sure we'll do in a moment, we're talking about where on the upper surface things close off, but we're not talking so much about the lower surface, the lower surface really being the tongue. So the first part of your tongue, the very front of it, is called the tip of your tongue. That's pretty clear. I think that's what we'd all say. Well, some people call it the apex, right? Exactly. And so the the Latin term, the adjective we use, it'd be a little silly to call it the tipple region of the tongue. Uh, So we call it the apical part of the tongue. And that refers to the apex. And really, just like the alveolar ridge, we could think about it as a point or we could think about it as a a rim, uh, a semicircular area. That, that really is the, the tip or the very front part of the tongue. I like to think of it as the front edge. Yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, because you are using it as an edge. You're uh, making contact to close off or to come close to another rounded area. You're making a doorway often. So right behind that, on the top surface of the tongue, is the lamina or blade Uh, I love that term. We've got edges and blades. So if you thought of it as a knife, the edge would be that very sharp edge. And then the blade is the body or flat surface of it. That is called the lamina, which really just means surface. And so we describe sounds made there as laminal. Um, Lamina is the same root for blade in French. Lame Ah. means uh, the blade of it. Terrific. That's very clever. So... One step back from there, we get into a, an interesting area uh, called the dorsum of the tongue. And you know, dolphins have their dorsal fin that's on their back. So this is the back <laughs> of the tongue, which is very confusing terminology. And it's going to get worse because there are either two or three regions of the dorsum of the tongue, the front, middle, and back, or you could just say the front and back. So we could be talking about the back of the back of the tongue, uh, these terms are really difficult. So uh, we may be saved by calling it the dorsal region and calling it the anterodorsal or the posterodorsal portion, the the front back or the back back. It sounds better when you, you step outside of English for a minute. And this has a real bearing. Oh, I guess I should finish the tongue. Behind the dorsum is the root of the tongue. That makes a lot of sense. That's also called the radix, and things back there are radical. Uh, root is one of those words, there, there are lots of them like radish uh, or radical. Uh, when you make a radical change, you make it from the root. For some reason, in German, rad means wheel, and I think that's completely unrelated. I think that's related to radius. So one step back from there, we run into the epiglottis again, and we're back where we were before, and those two areas Mm. come together. So the reason that I thought it was really useful to go over this, not just to talk about the anatomy, is there's something really different between the alveolar plosive, t, and this one that we're talking about today, the velar plosive. And it's not just where the closure is being made, it's what's making the closure. Mm -hmm. So why don't I hand it back to you and you can 
Talk us through how we make a velar plosive. So, uh, on a velar plosive, the front of your tongue is relaxed behind your lower front teeth. Um, and I think that that shift from front of tongue to dorsum of tongue, back of tongue, it is a fairly significant shift, partly because we have so um, few nerves in the back of our tongue yeah. compared to the plethora of nerve endings we have in the tip of the tongue. So we go from an area that's extremely sensitive in the front to an area that's much less sensitive and so works in a much more gross kind of way. Um, the, the back of the tongue essentially rising up to meet the soft palate, depending on context. Um, it may meet with the border of the soft palate and the hard palate or the back of the hard palate, depending on the sound that follows the, the articulation. Yeah. So English being like most languages, we anticipate generally the sound that comes next. And so if we're going to say key, our tongue is anticipating releasing into the vowel. If we made a key in the back, we would make sort of a key, key. We'd sort of slide into the E vowel. So we need to get our tongue as far forward as possible and still sound like we're in the k realm of of acoustic properties um, to anticipate that E placement. And then if we were to say ka, that k would be vertically above the a uh, vowel sound. And so that closure would um, function in the same way. Acoustically, the k sound of an E compared to the k sound of an ka is quite different, but our minds assume that they are the same. They are allophones, essentially, different sounds, grouped together to make a single action. And, and we make an adjustment in perception. When we hear a k and it's followed by that ah, we ignore the fact that it's made in a different place. We, we adjust in terms of our context. Uh, th there have been some experiments uh, putting the wrong placement of plosive, velar plosive, next to uh, uh, so putting a back place velar plosive next to a front E uh, and uh, testing people's ability to uh, identify the sound. And uh, we're pretty good at it, actually. We're, mm. we, we make those little adjustments all the time. And it's easy to think, especially when doing a show like this, where we break down this is this sound and this is how you do it. We think about those sounds as discrete and unchangeable. But in fact, in the, in the ongoing flowing gesture of language, there's quite a bit of variety. Mm. So uh, there is a challenge for little children who are learning their sounds. Exactly. Um, that pa, pa, ba, ta, da, fairly easy to see into the mouth to see how things are done. And children really do learn those sounds by the visual as much as by the, uh, the sound of it. And that one of the reasons we're so intent on looking carefully into babies' eyes and slowly articulating sounds for them, ba, ba, baby, uh, putting those sounds right in front of their face is so that they can see the sounds that we're making. Ka and ga, harder, harder to see? Uh, absolutely, and, and therefore they're a little later in acquisition. And It's difficult to say exactly because these things are different from child to child, but in general, children are not only uh, identifying and recognizing ka and ga 
later. They're, it takes children longer to get cut and gut in the right place. So mm. uh, they might say maybe there's a maybe there's a theory somewhere around the fact that mama right at the front, dada just a little bit back. Uh, there are there are no. Uh, family members who go around as Kaka and Gaga. Uh, exactly, right? exactly. Uh, yeah, poor old Auntie Lady Gaga. She's going to be. <laughs> you're not going to get to know her until much no, later. No, exactly. She's she's for grown-ups, definitely. Definitely. Um, now, Phil, you you uh, you need to explain something to me. I got this video, mm-hmm. uh, viral video of a guy doing this thing, and it was a little trick. You watch the video and you listen. And he says a sound, and you think, oh, I know what he's saying. He's saying, uh, I think he's saying, da-da. And then they say, close your eyes and listen to what he's saying. And he's saying, ba-ba. And what they've done, of course, is they put a ba-ba sound on top of the visual of someone saying gaga. So why did I hear that? Yeah, this is uh, uh, called the McGurk effect, which is a cool name in and of itself. And it, for one thing, it tells you how much you're using lip reading. As you were saying, we do this with children all the time, that uh, we're oh making up the difference all the time in our perceptions. And that's really necessary because the signal that we're getting is not reliable. Uh, we we won't always be getting exactly all the information we need, so we have to make some guesses. And this demonstrates how much guessing we're doing. It also demonstrates the fact that we do quite a bit of lip reading as well, that when we hear a sound and we don't see the lips coming together, well, then it sure as heck is not going to be a puh or a buh. So we discount what we hear to a certain degree. But I also think this is really good evidence that the acoustic difference between pa, da, and ga is really minimal. And so if I were to replace the visual information, uh, you would be easily misled because you don't have a lot of reliable information to to go on. Probably, if I were to try an experiment with the podcast listeners and uh, to make a sound, uh, I'll make one of those three, and I think it will take you a little while to figure out which one it is. So, is it da, ba, ga? It probably, for somebody looking at me, they would have a much quicker response, and they'd immediately identify it, and there'd be fewer mistakes. But somebody listening would have a little bit of trouble. And in fact, th- we talked before about preloading of saying ga and ba. That helps people actually to hear. Uh, one of the things I read in preparation to this is uh, by varying the length of the stop before the explosion in all plosives, uh, they could increase people's intelligibility. And they were doing this with people who were hearing impaired as well as people who had normal hearing. And the length of the stop, uh, the uh, existence of some sort of pre-voicing of voiced versions of those really, really increased people's intelligibility. 
which for people mm. in the theater maybe is a useful piece of information. Yes. Th- there's another example of this sort of uh, difficulty in perceiving small acoustic differences. Uh, it's called the date-gate experiment, which I always have a vision of the date-gate, which is that's where you get kissed, is at the gate with your date. It's the, that's the place it's going to happen. So what they've done is they've taken uh, somebody saying date, somebody saying gate, and analyzed acoustically the difference in that moment of release into the vowel. There's an acoustic difference between the d and the g. And what they've done is, using fancy software, made even gradations between them something that you couldn't really articulate. Uh, Date, then a date that's a little bit more like gate, and then a date that's much more like gate. And basically, they've broken it down into like six steps between date and gate, even increments of acoustic change. And when you listen to that, you hear, if you start with date, essentially, date, 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 gate, and suddenly you're in gate and you don't hear those fine gradations, you stick with your category, you stick with the one that brung you. And if you reverse it and start the same sounds with gate and move in even increments, you'll believe it's gate all the way to the point right before you get to date, where you can no longer suspend your disbelief, and it has to switch into the other category. And that's the nature of our perceptions. They're categorical. We hear things by category. And if we decide something's in a category, we actually change it so that it sounds to us, we perceive it, as more in the center of that category. I wouldn't be surprised that if you did a a study with color and you started with yellow and you slowly moved towards orange, you'd be yellow, 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 orange, and then you turn it around and went the other way, you'd go orange, 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 yellow. I think that's absolutely true. That we... However... Our sense of the integrity of color boundaries is not as intense because if something is purple, pink, fuchsia, at least for me, I'm left cold by that distinction. But if it's the difference between I'm going to kill you and I'm going to dill you, then I really want to know the difference between those two. Uh, Right. uh, I think that we've covered that pretty well. I'm, I'm just looking down at my list of things I want to talk about. Well, we, we have talked sort of briefly in, in d- discussing the difference between D and G about uh, uh, that, that release and the stop beforehand, and that one of the differences between K and G, in English at least, is that uh, K is an aspirated yes. sound. Now, if you don't know what aspirated means, that means you haven't been <laughs> listening to our podcasts. Um, so uh, if you go back to episode two or episode four, where we talk about aspiration quite a lot, we talk a bit about uh, uh, something called voice onset yeah. time. Uh, VOT, <laughs> voice onset time, is uh, that timing where uh, after the release of a voiceless consonant, there is some air um, so that we hear sort of a... Uh, like a little H almost, yeah. a voiceless version of the vowel that is following that consonant. And uh, if I'm saying k, k, the, the 
the, the sort of noise that comes immediately after the moment of silence is uh, the aspiration. That's the, the term that we use. And uh, an interesting fact is that compared to p and t, the length of the aspiration on k is quite a bit longer. It's almost twice as long. Um, so to give you a sense of how short this really is, a p or t is likely to be about 60 milliseconds, whereas a k is in an initial stressed syllable is likely to be about 120 milliseconds. So still just a little bit more than a tenth of a second. I was, uh, but it's, a, it's enough to make a I difference. I was really surprised to hear this. I hadn't, I hadn't heard this until you told me about it. And it, it makes me wonder why that would be. And I wonder if you have any theories about what uh, would create that delay. Well, my guess of it, well, I think the, the delay is made because we choose to make it in a way that English needs it to help us distinguish the k from the t. And by having more time in the k sound and less time in the t sound, then we perceive that difference that the k is not only different acoustically, but it's different in terms of its that length. That makes a lot of sense. So a, a, a greater difference. Now, you also uh, said uh, something that I think makes some difference. You talked about fewer nerve endings and uh, a little less agility, perhaps. So uh, with my lips or with the tip of my tongue, I can make a quicker movement, perhaps. I'm moving a smaller object than when I close my entire dorsum of my tongue up to the velum and yank that baby away. It will it will take a little while. So yes. yes. It's sort of like flicking a finger versus waving your hand. It's a slower, more clumsy gesture. So we seem to be saying that with the late acquisition of children getting this sound and with uh, its cumbersomeness, we seem to be saying that it's a toughie. However, uh, I did a little research uh, onto the WALS, the World Atlas of Language Structures, which is a terrific website that you should Google. They list... 2,650 languages. I say they list them. uh, There are maps showing these languages and their distribution based on different features. But we can't count the number of languages. I don't think there's an accurate count because people are finding them or defining them in different ways. But that's an awful lot of languages. And Out of those 2,650 languages, on this website, they note 32 of them only that don't have a G. So Nearly everybody's got a g. There was no information on this website about any languages that don't have a k, which I'll interpret at least as saying that they all have them. So k and g are everywhere in the world's languages. They're, they're useful sounds for people to be able to make, and they end up making them, even if you need a little bit of extra effort to make them and to distinguish them from other sounds. I did find a little thing on Wikipedia about that lack of Uh guh that Ian uh, Madison, who is uh, one of the co-writers of Sounds of the World's Languages, um, writes, he speculates that it's partly to do with the fact that um, for those uh, languages that don't have aspiration as a contrast point, um, so guh, sounding almost like our initial G, uh, and 
the, to differentiate ga from that, you have to voice before the release of the ga. And the way you do that is you create voice essentially into that pocket of air between the closure at your velos, your soft palate, and your nasal. So air is moving into a closed chamber that's expanding. Right. And there, it can only expand so far before the pressure difference is neutralized. And so uh, when that, that cavity is small, you can only make sound for a very short period of time. When it's a longer oral tract going to the duh place, you can make sound a little bit longer. And a buh, you can make even longer sound before you, can, you have to release. So that, that time is so short that the dis, dis distance between the ka uh, sound and the ga sound, uh, it's so subtle a difference that many languages probably can't bear that difference, and so ultimately we end up with just ka and not ka and ga. So uh, there's a a distinction, a three-way distinction that's easy to hear between aspirated pa, unaspirated pa, and voiced ba. And that's a harder distinction to make back at the velar closure. Right. So, ka and ga, that's fairly easy to differentiate, aspirated and unaspirated. Uh, ka, ga, and ga, harder to, and you have to kind of muscle your ga to make that sound a little bit more distinct, that pre voiced. Terrific. Effect. Uh, I think that maybe we ought to move along to spelling. Uh, mm. Sort of dreading this part because <laughs> ka and ga, the sounds ka and ga, in English and in other languages, have a sort of staggering number of orthographic representations. And perhaps I'd better uh, say again what I mean by orthography. Orthography is simply the writing of symbols. And spelling is sometimes fairly phonetic. That is to say, a single symbol represents a single sound. But there are plenty of places, and English is a prime example, where there are many different symbols that are meant to represent the same sound, or you can't rely on a symbol to only represent the, the one sound. So this, the letter that I'd say we in English most associate with the unvoiced velar plosive K is the K, the, the word K, the letter K, has a K sound in it. And that symbol came to us from a hieroglyphic, an Egyptian hieroglyphic symbol for a hand, which adjusted in proto-Semitic to be something that you could maybe call a hand, uh, to the Phoenician and Etruscan uh, symbols, which look very much like we would write a K only backwards. And then in Greek, the kappa, the letter kappa, is what we would all recognize as a K. It's turned what for us is the right way around. And that symbol continues to be in English and in many other languages using the Roman alphabet. In, in Rome, in, in Latin, there were several ways, though, of writing the K sound. The letter C, the letter K, and the letter Q were all used to represent K. And, in fact, there was a distinction, uh, or rather uh, a confusion with the letter C, which became the most common, between 
the voiced and unvoiced form of it. So in fact, that letter C, to distinguish the voiced and unvoiced forms, had a line added to it to make it look like a G. So both of our letters for K, the K letter, and G, the G letter, both come from the C letter. Confused yet? <laughs> the, the other challenge is that Greek had gamma for exactly. the G sound, but we didn't appropriate their letter shape to make Well, G, in fact, we, we appropriated, or rather the, the Latins, the Romans, appropriated the gamma and shifted it to make the C. <laughs> so the, uh, the gamma shifted into a little curve, uh, which was used in Latin for k. Uh, then it had a line added to it to represent g. So in English, for example, we have, for the most part, c representing k, and c with a line, or g, representing g. And that... Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. There are a lot of variant spellings, and that's an indication of varying pronunciation. Uh, it's as though each spelling is a, as an isotope of the pronunciation, or they're the cast-off skins of the ever-changing pronunciation. And I think I should probably give some examples of some, some spellings that will make us realize how uh, this pronunciation has changed over time. So... Well, can we just yeah, inter interject one thing, and that is that growing up, we probably all had to deal with hard G and soft G and hard C and soft C, and that generally uh, that hard, hard C was K, hard G was G, whereas soft G was the J sound, and soft C was a S sound. Exactly, and, and really... That shows how pronunciation of the k and the g sound have changed. And, and they change in phonetic context. As you were saying before, we, we make a k sound differently when we're making it before an e than when we make it before an a. And so in languages like Old English, where a k sound was uh, followed by an e sound, the pronunciation slowly changed to be more like a s sound. So words like cease or ace or macerate uh, have that s sound because of their phonetic context. The pronunciation changed even though the symbol stayed the same. So the term hard and soft uh, talks about the role that the letter is uh, taking uh, since the pronunciations have shifted. And that's certainly true for g as well. Uh, g sounds uh, in Italian. You'll see that g followed by an i is a j, uh, whereas when it's followed by a, a back vowel, uh, it would be more of a g. Uh, Italian adds an h, uh, Spanish adds a, a U, or French adds a U. Is that right? La guerra. Yeah, and words like long. And in Spanish, yeah. too, guerra. So those are spelling shifts to try to indicate this difference between hard and soft versions of, of the sound. What that really means is that 
the speakers of these languages recognize that there's a phoneme there that is shifting based on context. And a phonetic way of writing it would be much easier, uh, but we would then lose contact with old words. So we have to find some way to explain the shifting pronunciation. So, Unfortunately, it's very hard to explain <laughs> to uh, second language learners how to an- anticipate when it's going to be a s, c, or a k. Exactly. Uh, uh, and uh, mostly there are rules about the phonetic context that are probably going to help. Uh, so let's take a look at k. There are lots of words that have a k sound. Key, keep, uh, I can't right now think of a k-oo sound or a k-a sound, except for uh, Australian words like koala and kangaroo. Uh, and or made-up words like <laughs> Exactly. And I think that's, uh, that's the point, that in English we're using that k to indicate strangeness. But the words that we've had in English for a long time, that k is a way of indicating... Uh, the stability of the k pronunciation because k is not going to be pronounced in a different way. It's The letter k is stably attached to k. The, the spelling c, however, is much more variable. There's a hard and soft version of that. So we get cat, cost, cut, uh, but cease and ceiling and cesium uh, that has a lot to do, I would say, with the vowel that's going to come after. There are double C's, and uh, one of the uh, pronunciations that I find really interesting is the character in Taming of the Shrew, Petruccio. The, the Italian rules for pronouncing that C-H-I-O would tell us that it's kio. And so when we say Petruchio, we're reconstructing uh, what we take to be Shakespeare's good grasp of Italian spelling. However, However. Uh, the, the word, the Italian name, is ch. It's spelled differently, but it's... Exactly. Petruccio. So Shakespeare was actually using English phonetic rules, English spelling rules, to tell his actors, I suppose how they ought to pronounce it, which was correct. Probably should have exactly. been Petruccio. That's, or Petruccio. But you know, I have yet to hear an American production or an English production that pronounces the name that way because we're, we're stuck in that error, I'm afraid. So the K sound has these uh, C spellings in some words, definitely K spellings, sometimes CK spellings, and then also some CH spellings like charisma or choir, that's further confusion because we've used ch to represent an, another phoneme that we'll get back to, which is ch. So that's very complicated. I think we can see the same thing happening with g, game, bag, agony, but also gem, badge, and magical uh, Again, that's about the phonetic context and the history of the word. Double Gs, we're pretty clear, are stably g. Egg and dagger and stagger. Uh, 
I can't think of a double G that would be pronounced J. Unless it's some sort of loan word exactly. in Italian. And speaking of loan words, we have the G-H spelling and the G-U spelling. In a word like ghetto, the G-H uh, is an Italian loan, which uh, the G-H is meant to indicate that it's a hard G, and ghetto is an Italian word. I'm a little more confused about ghost, which has a G-H, but is Germanic and English in its roots, flabbergast, gasted. Uh, so the, and those words, which are essentially the same word as ghost, in Shakespeare's time were spelled without the G-H. So I don't really know what's up with that. There's another G-H spelling in English that's been around for a long time, which is uh, G-H after vowels. So night and ought, which doesn't get pronounced as G at all. That G-H spelling was originally, uh, I believe it's pronounced Yoch, Y-O-G-H, and words like night were pronounced Nicht, uh, and Ought, I imagine, was Ocht. That went through a further softening, if you will, and eventually disappeared. So, in fact, in a word like night, K-N-I-G-H-T, which would originally have been Knicht, those harder pronunciations faded away till we just got night. There's one last spelling uh, g that I want to point out to, and that's x, uh, which is... Uh, Unless it's a k. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, and, I'm sorry, I didn't even understand that. Unless what's a k? X. That it looks like a k. Well, no, oh, that if you're saying uh, ex- exit... The X is for a KS, where, right? Where if I'm saying exist, it's a exactly. GZ. So it's a voicing, a way, devoicing right? question. So words like examine. Uh, now, this is interesting. I, I certainly have heard exit uh, as well as exit. It's a, yes, I think it's an American British ah, so thing. And being Canadian, <laughs> I get stuck halfway in between, sometimes saying British-sounding things and sometimes But would you say American that your pronunciation of exit is variable, or is it always x? I always say exit, yes. But I might say something else that sounds... So I say uh, luxury, never luxury. Yeah. Um, I might make a point of saying <laughs> luxurious, <laughs> Uh, but uh, normally I would say luxurious, um, and that that I think is uh, an American British. What about exam? Difference. Exam is definitely the same as you. So is th- this is a, essentially X standing for k, s, but being variable in terms of voicing. Uh, I tell you, my students have just such a hard time seeing that because they just see the X as as a an unvoiced sound, and forget that they actually often will do it as a voiced sound. So that is an exhaustive uh, and probably occasionally inaccurate history of the spelling of these very complicated sounds. I do want to point out that the phonetic alphabet, the IPA, uh, uses the K for the K sound and a G for the G sound. Absolutely. It's worth noting that typographically, uh, G is 
uh, often in uh, fonts that one might encounter on your computer, uh, written with what is called a two-story G, that is, with a loopy-tailed G, um, so that the loop comes off the left side of the top circle and then swishes around to the right and closes off, whereas uh, uh, the G that is used, uh, it's a single-story G symbol, and it's got a circle with a a J-like tail. And uh, that's one of the reasons why you can't just use any font to do IPA. Uh, You have to make sure that the font that you use has the right kind of G when you do the G symbol for the IPA. Indeed, at at one point, Um, somebody proposed to the IPA that uh, the two-story G be used for the normal English G and that the single-story be used for a more front pronunciation, uh, the IPA rejected that idea and uh, kept this funny G uh, as uh, the representation of the voiced feeler plosive. Uh, It's not so funny. That's the way I write it when I handwrite it. I never do a double-story handwritten G. Yes, it's really only a typographic convention, the double-story G, really. Well, I think we're now into the portion where we talk about variations in pronunciation. And there aren't nearly as many variations as we had with T and D, that's for sure. And I'd say that the big variations fall into the same categories as uh, the T and D and P and B in that they're about voice onset time, degree of release, so there's a difference between uh, stick, uh, stick, or stick. Uh, that there's either no explosion, no release, or there's a release without a lot of aspiration, or there's a release with plenty of aspiration. And those follow the same rules as p and b and t and da, or rather p and t, because it's a, a feature of uh, of the unvoiced plosives that they have aspiration. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk to us a little bit about the Liverpool variations. Yeah, it's it's a, a softening. Um, and the, the term for softening that we use is lenition. Um, and that in Liverpool, we get uh, either a, a fricative sound, a frictiony noise. So a word like like will go to leich. And a word like uh, back will go to bach. And a word like dock will go to Now, is to that only dock. in final positions? Uh, it's only in final positions. So uh, the, the, you get a palatal uh, fricative sound um, following uh, the, the uh, closing diphthongs, things like A and I, or a front monothong, so A. Ah. Or you can get them after an O, too. Um, so when it follows an I, the K sound is very far forward, so it's a sh sound, which is that Eartha Kitt doing <laughs> Catwoman hiss. Uh, yes, if you know German, it's the ich sound uh, made at the front. And uh, with, for the backer vowels, like ach uh, and och, those are fricatives made on the velum or on the uvula. So those are... Um, those are the variations that you encounter in so Liverpool speech. So I'd say bich or buch. Buch, yeah. If you uh, 
like that uh, sci-fi comedy hmm. show Red Dwarf, um, you can hear a lot of this. Well, I have a challenge uh, for for all of us, and that is I, I remember very clearly from, I think it's uh, the Beatles movie Help, uh, uh, we're talking about Paul's grandfather, and somebody says, he's very clean. And I seem to recall that that clean was in a was an almost fricative release. It was certainly very, very back. So anybody who wants to look that up and send us an email, please do. That would be cool. So other f- ways in which the sound is realized, uh, w- one that stands out to me that we've talked about a little before is the glottal plosive. And it occurred to me that we wouldn't be doing a show on the glottal plosive because the glottal plosive, in a way, isn't a phoneme of English. It doesn't have an independent meaning, but it stands in in a lot of places. So could you tell us about the formation of glottal plosives? Sure. Glottal plosives are essentially a sound that's chopped off by your glottis. Your vocal folds come together and stop the sound. So unlike any other uh, stop in the oral tract, we can't have a voiced glottal stop because your vocal folds can't vibrate because they're stopped. Um, so it, like pa, ta, ka, it's essentially another step further down right at your glottis and so we get uh so though there aren't english words that have it we do use it in uh uh mm-hmm. um and that's a quite common use of glottal uh stop you can't say that expression without a glottal stop but we might use it as a substitution for a a final velar plosive just as we might for a final uh dental plosive or rather alveolar plosive so we might say uh, what's that like? And close the glottis rather than really at anywhere else in the vocal tract. Sure, and particularly if we're f- the that final sound is being followed by a nasal, we might have like Mary, that kind of closure. Um, rather than it happening in your soft palate, we might have it happen down. And I think you had said voice. in a previous episode that a lot of times these plosives, that, that is to say. Uh, the ones that are used in English, the bilabial, the alveolar, and the velar plosive, uh, have some glottal reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Final stops often uh, when they, particularly at the end of an utterance, we we don't like the effort that is required by stopping it fully with the lips or the tongue at the gum ridge or with the tongue at the soft palate. Um, if you if you were to say uh, I'm hip to that, if I'm going to stop on that P, uh, I, I'm really hip. Um, if I stop it merely with my lips, then there'll be air pressure pushing against that. And if you stop with your lips as well as your vocal folds, there's really no lip effort. We just bring the lips together, and it's the closing of the lips very closely followed by the closure of the glottis that we hear as the chopping off of the sound. So to uh, replace a final uh, T that's got glottal reinforcement with just a glottal stop or a final K that's got glottal reinforcement, to replace either of those with just a glottal stop 
is very easy. We've already got that as part of our um, mm -hmm. habit, if you will, that we use the glottal stop to make it less effortful, a little bit more easy. Um, and, of course, for accents of English that have a lot of glottal stops in them already, so they're using glottals, for instance, to replace a medial intervocalic T, so they say bea, uh, it's very easy to also use just a glottal for uh, get to the bat, uh, mm -hmm. to glottal that final K sound, because uh, it's, it's, it's part of their um, range of sounds exactly. very much. Um, I think people who don't do that very much are less likely to I, I read a paper in the preceding day or two as I was thinking about this episode that uh, compared second language learners of Portuguese, that is to say English speakers who were learning Portuguese, and native-speaking Portuguese speakers' uh, perceptions of how successfully they were speaking their Portuguese. And, and apparently, Portuguese doesn't really do much glottal reinforcement. And glottal reinforcement was the feature of English that stood out very clearly to the native speakers, uh, but was very difficult for the English speakers to adjust and get their pronunciation correctly, because they really didn't perceive very clearly that they were doing it. I think that's a, a great example of another instance where there's there's so little uh, self-awareness of the vocal folds, uh, very few nerves in the larynx area, and so when when actions are going on in our laryngeas, we don't really and feel think what we're, we're doing so much. We yeah. might feel that air pressure, but we don't tend to feel the closure. I think we're probably very pleased folds. that we don't have a lot of sensory feedback in our laryngeas. Uh, or it would be alarming to speak. I, there, I there's another right. feature that I, I think I'm going to have to group into this, since I don't think we talked about it in the other plosive episodes, and that is uh, final obstruent devoicing in German. Uh, if I know, it's a wonderful phrase. Final obstruent devoicing. Uh, in the German language, and you could see it by looking at cognates between English and German, the difference between God and Gott uh, is one of devoicing, and it's part of the, oh, I'm going to use another big word, part of the phonotactics, part of the rules for how you put sounds together in German that makes it different than English. So uh, an English word like big would probably be pronounced by a German as big because that seems like the natural thing to happen with the plosive at the end of a word, that it should be devoiced. Uh, not just that that's how you pronounce the word, but that's how words are pronounced. And so, uh, big, dog, uh, a German would most likely uh, devoice those sounds. So they're essentially applying German rules exactly. to English Exactly, and frankly, sound. this is something that we're going to encounter again and again. You and I encounter a lot when we're dealing with people working on accents. An accent is essentially the predictable failure to speak the target language correctly. And that's founded on the set of rules that people carry with them from their L1, from their first language. So you and I would speak our German, I imagine. I would speak it very badly. 
and with all sorts of English rules layered in there because our rules of pronunciation aren't really conscious or they're not. And so fre- so frequently when you're learning a second language, uh, they, are, they are teaching you rules about grammar, about word order, about uh, building the correct kind of verb, um, but they're not taking the time to actually teach you teach you things about phonotactics, yeah. about the rules of how pronunciation is done. You might get some general ideas of how the spelling correlates to some pronunciation, um, but uh, you're you're not likely to get a detailed description of what the heck is going well, on. And that has to do with mouth. the fact that so we're you guess our sense of whether a, a sentence is well formed or badly formed, or uh, whether something follows the rules of how words get made in English, that is unconscious. Any five-year-old could tell you uh, whether it's okay, uh, whether bleach could be an English word. Uh, if they were a speaker of another language, they wouldn't know because we've internalized these rules. And so when we try to make a change, uh, it's very difficult to perceive the difference because we've made them as subconscious part of our accommodation of the world rather than as the execution of a set of explicit rules. That's really not the way language works. Yes. Different part of the brain. Well, I believe that we have covered everything we need to cover about k and g. Uh, we, I would suggest if one is trying to really figure out k and g, that they might want to listen to the other plosive episodes together with this one because there are a lot of shared concepts. I agree. So this takes us really to the end of our time looking at uh, stop plosive sounds. And I just wondered whether, uh, we, we didn't talk about this before, but whether we might throw out any stop plosive sounds that we encounter that aren't English oh, that's a great idea. stop plosives. That, uh, the, you know, they're within the category, but they're not sounds we're likely to encounter speaking English. Um, I think immediately of uh, palatal yeah. versions of ta and da uh, made with the tip of the tongue behind the lower front teeth and the blade of the tongue touching on the hard palate, and so you get ta and da, which uh, isn't a difference in English, but you might encounter it in, I believe, in Polish, you get some palatal uh, There's stops. certainly a variation uh, within accents of English with laminal alveolar sounds, but then there are these palato-alveolar sounds where we're making a closure, as you say, with the blade of the tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are also palatal sounds where the entire dorsum of the tongue goes right up in there and makes a cha or a ya. And Czech, I know, has that sound. The a lot, a lot yeah. of the Eastern European languages where we get palatalized uh, stop consonants. Um, so that they have what sounds to us almost like a little E sound after the release of the And these uh, are notoriously consonant. difficult for an English speaker to, to do. And I had a Polish, or rather a Czech colleague uh, for a while, and I would pretty much on a daily basis walk down to his office and poke my head in and say, Cielo, and he would nod politely and say, it's much closer. <laughs> but he never did say, I got it. <laughs> 
Um, another sound that's a stop um, that you might encounter these days with uh, notes on um, the Middle East is the sound uh, that's represented by the letter mm-hmm. Q in the IPA, and that's a uvular stop. And you hear it uh, in the name of the country, Qatar, where we we use a K sound to rep- replace that sound, but normally it would be Qatar. So it's yeah. a K-made Further back and obviously, Iraq, Al-Qaeda, those are very common words that are pretty much never pronounced accurately uh, in, in the news because it's a very difficult sound for an English speaker to not only perceive but to comfortably do. It's further back in the mouth. Well, the, the, really, the, the convention is that when we're speaking English, we bring the sounds of that are not part of English to the yeah. closest neighbor. Um, and so we we don't say Qatar, we say Qatar, and that's the English version of that place name, rather than saying a sound that's not in English. Um, now we we do try sometimes to get French and German names to sound. You know, people are likely to say Bach, but many people will say Bach uh, and use a K instead of that K sound because uh, that's we not say in English. Van Gogh, uh, not Van Gogh. Uh, however it's really pronounced, it's, it's quite a bit different. So, yes, these are, these are sounds, these uh, sounds in front of and behind the velar closure uh, that are doable. They're unlikely to be sounds that an English speaker would make. It's possible that a speaker of a language that has that sound in their phonemic inventory, that they might uh, use that sound in the place of an English sound. But if I remember correctly, Arabic has both a velar and a uvular plosive, a k and a k. And so since they have it, they wouldn't be using the, the wrong one. Right. Because we have so many uh, languages that do have paba, uh, tada, and kaga, it's not likely that those will be replaced by the wrong sound. They might have differences about voice onset mm-hmm. time, as we've often said. However, actors working on plays where they have to say character names or place names, frequently what we do is we have them say those in the language or the the style of the language, and so they're trying to get the articulation of those names correctly. Even though they're going to speak English through the entire play with an accent, they have to be able to say some words in that accent. I uh, frequently get hired to teach actors who don't speak a language how to do a little snippet in a language that I don't speak. And this is some of the most terrifying coaching that I do. Um, Essentially, I have to take those words apart, slow them down, figure out what they're saying, and then teach them on a sort of gesture-by-gesture basis to the actors so that they can learn to sound like they know how to speak that language, even a little bit. Uh, usually it's one or two words or lines that they have to be able to sound I just got like a script they know what that, they're doing. Uh, th- this actually relieves me of that problem, but the, the sentence that I have to help somebody with is, La vivo sen esperanto, estas ne emagebla al mi. A life without esperanto is unimaginable to me. Uh, so uh, there's a considerable, since esperanto is a an invented language, there's a little bit more leeway in correct pronunciation of Esperanto. Uh, 
Oh, is that is that the case that there isn't a good uh, well, Esperanto accent? Uh, our our hero John Wells uh, has made fine recordings of uh, authoritative Esperanto pronunciation, but there seems to be some distinction between North American pronunciation of Esperanto and, let's say, Italian uh, pronunciation of Esperanto. So, a language invented to bring people together is already displaying the sort of language drift uh, that happens with all languages. I just think that's interesting. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, version of uh, early modern English that uh, some of these theaters are using to do Shakespeare plays in and that they allow different actors to have uh, early modern pronunciation that sounds a little bit more Irish or a little bit more Warwickshire, a little bit more American, and that these are the, the, they justify this as the regional versions of early <laughs> modern English. And uh, that Esperanto is perhaps a bit like uh, manufactured early modern English, that nobody really can define what the correct way is because uh, But this actor I'm going to work up. with, I, he's going to be as confident as I can make him in this uh, esoteric, let's say, pronunciation. Well, that sounds like yes. everything that we need to talk about today. Uh, we have our boilerplates at the end, which is uh, our email address. Glossonomia at gmail.com. Terrific, which is where you can send us an email to ask us questions, or if you can record yourself asking a question, that will be a delightful thing as well. We'll put you, snip you into the podcast. And uh, certainly you can uh, find us on iTunes and perhaps write a review there as well. Unless I've forgotten anything, I think that's all we've got today, Aaron. It is. Okay, great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure. Thank mm-hmm. you.